All right, guys, we're here with the We Make Supplements podcast this week. Today we have Sean Marzalek and myself. Sean, say hi. How's it going, Encore? It's going pretty good. Good. I got a little bit of a tan. Yeah, I know. Coming back from Easter weekend. I see that. I see that. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about my, my plans or my stories from what happened this weekend. I think it would make really good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is the wrong podcast. <laughs> we're going to have to do a different one for that. Um, but I did get a ton of messages on the We Make Supplements Instagram over the weekend. I guess everyone was just sitting at home messaging, yeah, yeah, checking in okay. the DMs or whatever it was. I did um, create a new IGTV video, and I think that's what's driving all this new traffic. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's Yeah, tell cool. me about that. Well, if you check out the account, you'll see these IGTV videos that we're putting up now. Yep. And, um, I mean, I saw Gary V do this. So I was like, we should probably see if this works for us, right? So <laughs> we took a, a static image, and we put that image as, like, the first couple seconds of the video. And then IGTV lets us put in, like, two-minute videos right nice. into the main yeah. feed and everything. So we're, we're plugging those right into the We Make Supplements page. And it's working. Yeah? Yeah. Like, so tell me, like, when you say it's working, what are the metrics that you're using to say, hey, this is working, or we need to adjust something well, we're getting DMs that we weren't getting before. Okay. And we are definitely getting views. Like the Insights tab is showing yeah. us a, a nice little peak in traffic. They're coming to the page. Oh, okay, cool. And then um, at Google Analytics was showing a bunch of new hits on the website too. Yeah, that's great. So it's exciting stuff. Yep. So let's talk about some of these DMs and the questions I was getting. Okay. So I had two people ask me, what type of product should I launch with when I start my company? And uh, I was like, wow, this is a great topic for me and Sean to kind of jump into. Yeah, it's so, a loaded question. Okay, so if someone <laughs> asked you, you know, what product do I start with, what would you pick? Well, I mean, I would probably ask them some questions first, right? Okay. I so, mean, I, so I let's would, pretend I'm the customer. Ask okay. me the questions. Well, I, I mean, I would want to know, like, what what's the consumer, right? What's your niche? What's your target customer? Uh, what kind of uh, lifestyle does that customer live, right? Okay. Those are the things, because obviously, you know, anybody can come in and say, look, I want to launch a protein, and that's the easiest one to start with, or a pre-workout, Right. But I also think there's a lot of value uh, when guys come to us and, and women come to us and they know who their customer is. They know the lifestyle of their customer and they create these, you know, quote unquote, niche products, big niches in mm -hmm. some of these categories. Right. Uh, whether it's, you know, a nootropic or whether it's some type of a botanical for sleep or energy. Right. So I think the first thing that people need to do is know who their customer is and the lifestyle of that customer. And then I can very easily help guide them or, or our formulators could help guide them into what types of products that they should start with. You know, because, again, if you're if you're looking at a, a certain lifestyle, maybe a protein doesn't make sense to add first or even ever. I could agree with that. I think there's two types of customers, though, for this type of question. There's the ones that have an audience and the ones okay. that don't have an audience yet. Okay. Right. A lot, I think a lot of people that are DMing us, I think we got both guys that are in our, in our inbox, but uh, I know one of the guys had like 100,000 followers. So uh, I'm sure, you know, the questions of like, you know, what do you think your people want, right? Are they like, guys, are there people that follow you because you're posting thirst trap pictures? Or are they people that are following you because you have actual clout and, you know, you're telling yeah, these yeah. guys real fitness advice? Yeah. On the other end, I think... People need to understand that if you don't have the audience, you got to figure out how to do something better than the next person, right? Um, I think they call it the purple cow theory in marketing, right? And oh, um, tell me about this. I've never heard that term. Yeah. So um, Seth Godin had written this book, right? And uh, it was all about marketing and being the purple cow, right? Imagine you're driving down the highway, and you know you see all these cows. You're not really going to stop the car and pay attention, but if all of a sudden you were to see a purple cow. You would probably stop the car, take out your, your camera phone, call someone like, you won't believe what the hell I'm looking <laughs> yeah, at right yeah, now. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's kind of the idea there. And you could either do that with packaging. 
You could do it with, uh, you know, really innovative formulas. Yeah. I mean, we saw uh, Performix do this, you know, in our inside industry pretty well right when yeah, they created they those great jobs inside the capsules yeah. and their packaging was special um the price point was was ridiculous right but it was all for a reason and that's why they stood out with what they were doing yeah so i totally agree it's a good I, example i think people just have to figure out what their edge is going to be and and if they have the audacity to actually try and go out there to market with it i mean see what happens yeah i mean i think you know using performance as a, as an example i mean i think one of the things that people need to be aware of too right because i mean we get a lot of people that I, I know i get a lot of people that reach out to me and they have these you know really cool ideas Right. But they don't really understand the minimum order quantity around some of those things, like whether it's, you know, a unique packaging that maybe us as a manufacturer would need to order 60,000 of those bottles or even sometimes, you know, something so unique that, you know, our suppliers might tell us, hey, this is, you know, you need to order 200,000 of these bottles uh, as an MOQ. Uh, and then also, like, I'm sure when Performix launched with the beadlets, like, right, and they, we can do 120,000 powdered capsules for someone as an MOQ here to get them started, right? But I doubt that those beadlets uh, would have been ran at those minimum order quantities. So, yeah, right, they probably, like yeah. 10 million? Yeah, I mean, it might, I think, yeah, it was, it was definitely over a million. I don't remember the number, but we've looked into it for certain customers over the years. And so, you know, understanding that and being able to, like, tell a customer, hey, this is a great idea, um, but really setting those expectations up front of like, you're gonna have to figure out how to be the purple cow uh, within your expectations of how much, you know, initial inventory you wanna carry. No, for sure. I think that also sparks another good question, right? If you really have an innovative solution or something really different, should you wait to go to market and go get funding? Or do you learn to crawl first in the industry and, and launch with the, a more basic version of what it is you're trying to do get that audience, get some history, and then... I mean, know, that's a great question, and, and I think it really comes down to how unique is it, right? Mm. I mean, if you've got something really special and it really is something that nobody has done before, you know, I would probably, my opinion would be get to market with that very quickly, um, but, you know, have the right funding to do it right. Uh, but if you... Th if you're just kind of like, Hey, it's kind of unique and you know, it's a spinoff of something, my guess would be, you know, my, my, uh, advice would be just get to market and, you know, crawl, walk, run with it. Um, but again, yeah, if it's super unique and it's something that no one has seen before and you know, and you feel in your heart can make a, a big difference because you're bringing something so unique to the market, then I, I would do it right and, and, uh, take the risk. You know, we're all entrepreneurs that are starting these companies, uh, or we wouldn't be starting a company. Right. So yeah, for sure. doesn't always work. It doesn't always work when you crawl, walk, run. Right. And it right. definitely doesn't always work when you swing for the fence right out of the gate. But, uh, I guess that's part of being an entrepreneur. So let's jump into another DM. I think after asking the types of products, they were like, well, you know, what else do we need to do to, to launch a company? Okay. I was like, oh boy, this is going to be a fun conversation because there's <laughs> so many things that I didn't know when we started, you know, the brands that I had. And I'm sure, you know, 10 plus years ago when you started, there was all sorts of things that you learned as you went. Yeah. And I feel like some brands just need to understand that there's probably a couple of basic steps that you have to do. Um, you know, let's look at the basics, right? Register an LLC, yeah. create a bank account, um, you know, have articles of formation, all the basic things that someone, you're an accountant, your bank, someone will help you with that kind of stuff. You have to buy your domain, register your handles on social media, right? Yep. Um, now, quite often people will come up with the name of a company and then go to buy the domains, register the handles on social, and they'll be like, all right, none of these are available. And then you, know, you have to pivot, you change your name or come up with some type of solution for what you're going to do. 
And um, I mean, with Shreds, right? We started with Beyond Genetic Supplements. That was yeah, the name I remember of the company that, yeah. we started, right? But then, uh, you know, Shreds took off, so we ended up renaming the company and, and switching everything over to, to that name. So, yeah, and for us, I mean, we the the company was called SDC Nutrition, which were just basically, um, you know, Sean Devaney and, and a partner we had initially, Charles. Um, but we were starting with a brand called About Time, and we wanted a different actual corporation name, so we had to form the corporation name and then come up with the brand name. Uh, so, and and now SDC is obviously you know, something that people know about from a manufacturing perspective. So good thing we had it in place. No, for sure. I think th this goes back to that crawl, run, crawl, walk, run concept, right? Do you get business insurance on day one? Do you wait till you hit a certain sales number? Do you, do you file for a trademark on day one? You know, these, these are types of questions I think most brand owners don't understand when they're, you know, yeah, in the stages. Yeah. And I think it's a, I don't think there's a right way to do it. Right. I'm sure you could talk to a lot of entrepreneurs out there who started, started, you know, didn't even do anything formal and just started getting a lot of sales and really ramping up revenue uh, and started making money. And then someone came along and said, Hey, you don't have this place, this in place, this in place or that in place. And so you get it in place. Right. And then there's some people that, you know, their philosophy is, Hey, I'm not going to go to market till I have everything in place. And I, I don't want to take any of these chances. And I'm sure you can find a lot of examples of s super successful people that have done it both ways. I, I remember this one, um, this one brand that, uh, you know, we happen to you know, have a little hand in now, right? It's called Recore. And yeah. uh, I remember when I was first looking up their, their product labels, trying to get an understanding of how these labels are designed and how they work, uh, I looked at the UPC codes. And, you know, I'm talking to the company that, you know, the previous owners and the people behind it. And they're like, yeah, we just made up the UPC numbers. These aren't real UPCs. And I'm just like, what? Like, wait, I don't <laughs> even understand that. Because when we started Shreds, like, the first thing we did was we, we, like, we researched how UPC codes work and how to go buy one of those and, you know, get, get your GS1 certificate. And uh, I remember talking to a couple of brands about it later on in my career, and, and these people didn't even know what GS1 was. Yeah. And stuff like that just boggles my mind. No, yeah, a lot of people don't don't know a lot of these things. And, and a lot of people that reach out to me are very – I had an email exchange and a phone call with a guy yesterday, and – you know, even he even started the email after the call and just said, look, sorry for all the dumb questions, but I'm new to this. Right. right and right. so but at least he was asking questions. So I think that's the key is make sure you have people around you that you can ask these questions to. Don't think like you don't think you know everything. Right. And definitely if you're if you're starting a supplement brand and you're working with a manufacturer, if they've been around for a while, they should be able to guide you through a lot of these things and, and utilize their years of knowledge to, to try to do things as right as possible out of the gate. So, you know, you said right as possible right out of the gate. Yeah. Let's jump into another question I got. Label claims. Okay. So a lot of guys are hitting us up saying that, you know, they want their label to have all these crazy claims on it. And, uh, you know, I try to give them some advice saying that, in my experience, I, I went with no claims. I don't know if you remember the yeah. church packaging. Yep. It was just all name branding, right? Yep. And that's what we went with. And anything we wanted to do claims-wise was done on social or through the website or anything in that nature. Smart, safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, we were very, we were, we were trying to be as risk averse as possible. But yeah. I think when it comes to, uh, you know, best practices, I think you'd probably be someone that would be a great person to ask. Well, what do you think best practices are for a label claim? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm kind of with you on being risk adverse when it comes to packaging. You know, I mean, if you look at some of the brands that we have in the marketplace, uh, we're not making claims uh, on these packages as well. You know, I think there's a 
there's an FDA perspective, which when you manufacture with a quality organization, uh, your labels will go through. Uh, for us, for example, our quality review process uh, starts with our designers getting things set up from a supplement fact standpoint. Uh, it'll go through our quality department for a review for FDA claims and FDA regu regulatory um, outline and stuff like that as it relates to how the labels are laid out and what you're saying on there. And then separately, there's FTC claims, right? Typically, our quality department and most manufacturers aren't reviewing uh, in-depth FTC claims. So I think, you know, understanding that there are two separate types of claims on uh, on a label is probably yeah. the first place to start. Um but I've always been, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of products on the marketplace that maybe sell a lot high volume because of the claims they're making. But I, as to your point, I also know a lot of brands that are not making a lot of claims. They're not, they don't have the sleep at night worrying about the FDA reaching out with a warning letter or the FTC reaching out, uh, trying to claw back some of the money they've yeah. made. Right. And they're super successful without those claims. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I lean towards the less claims, the better. I like to tell people that the consumers aren't uneducated anymore, right? Consumers know the difference between you putting you know, something crazy on the label, like this works 10,000 10, times better, but nothing else is on the label. It's like better than what? Yeah. Right? Consumers can ask that question. You can't get away with that anymore. Um, I, I think best practices, in my opinion, are using your subspex panel. Making any claims that are on your supplement facts panel is, you know, going to be a pretty accurate statement on what you're doing, right? That's when you see a protein tub and you see a big call out saying 25 grams of protein or saying uh, zero net carbs on a Kikito shake. Yeah. Um, those are the types of things I think people are looking for. Yeah, right? and I think I think as as brands developed or products evolve, um, you know, when you start looking at branded or, or patented or trademarked materials that actually have you know studies behind them. Those are nice call outs to have and those are good claims to have. But you have the studies behind those patented materials and those branded materials. So I think sometimes it, those are something you want to look at. If you're if you're somebody who's looking to start a brand and you're really big on claims, I would say, you know, start looking at some of the patented materials out there that have uh, research behind them. So then, you know, when you're putting those claims on the label, uh, you you can back that up. Right. And you don't have to lose sleep at night over it. So that's an interesting uh, direction to go in. Uh, I remember when we first started, there were times where we would just like Google stuff, right? And like websites, not like WebMD, but like other websites out there would make these these claims and these articles. But uh, I remember after meeting with our FTC firm, they told us like, this isn't how it works, right? You need documented uh, things and you got to create this like uh, binder was what they called it, right? With uh, all your substantiation and everything that you're going to say about a product. And um, these need to be... Uh, registered studies yeah, and, and things like that. You yeah. can't just use some article that some Joe Schmo wrote on like joesfitnessblog.com. Yeah, right? clinical Same. trials, right? you know, yeah. And, um, you know, you could find this stuff pretty easily when you Google uh, different ingredients and things that you want to use, but you have to have all that like documented somewhere ready to go in case someone is going to ask you anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of times if you work with a manufacturer and you're going to use specific materials that have these studies behind them, the raw material, uh, either the patent owner or the trademark owner of those materials or the manufacturer of those materials, um, they're excited that you're using their raw material, right? So they're going to pr provide all that for you um, if they're a you know, legitimate company with, with actual trademarks and patents and stuff so like what that. Are, what are some good examples of like uh, trademarked ingredients that uh, you know, people could be asking about? 
Uh, I mean, we see a lot on the on the mineral side, like okay. so trademark minerals and stuff, like um, tracks. Yeah, like tracks. Like okay. yeah, there's a, a great company Albion that you know um, a lot of people ask specifically for their minerals. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I don't want to kind of dive in and say like why those materials are better. Uh, I'm sure Dan, if you have Dan on, he could talk to you about those. These are the guys with like uh, the creatine magnet power. Correct. Right. Yeah. Creatine magnet. Yeah. I, power. I remember I was on the phone with these guys for like an hour trying to understand why this why this version of the product is better than everything else. And they were explaining stuff to me like they attach a magnesium to uh, like the chemical compound of you know different the, molecules, different molecules, yeah, right. right? Outside my this, my pay grade. And like this <laughs> makes the absorption better, and like this and the other. And they had all these studies. It was like a I want to say twenty page booklet of like just stuff I could use in marketing. And I'm like, wow, this is great. Yeah. Um. Now I remember. There being a couple of patent ingredients that we couldn't get our hands on because I guess people just had it for their their product. Yeah, that that happens sometimes too. Is you know uh, companies will come out with a patented material, and instead of licensing it out to everyone to use in the marketplace, uh, one of the strategies you see sometimes is that company specifically only go into market with one brand and that's their competitive edge, mm -hmm. right? So they flood the market with that material and those studies and those claims uh, really build it around. And then eventually, once they kind of reach a certain point, they realize, okay, now it's time to let other brands use this too. And then that's kind of how they take their, their material to the next level. So you see, you see it both ways. So you kind of have to lean on your manufacturer a lot, right? Get, get the question answered of what you don't know about the industry or about the business and get an understanding of what types of marketing edge that we could give them. And, uh, I mean, you have to either know if you have an audience already, what, is, what kind of stuff are they going to buy, right? Yep. What are the claims that they actually care about? And if you don't have that audience yet, you kind of just got to figure out, you know, do you have the ability to create a purple cow in the industry? And if you don't, maybe you should rethink what you're doing. Yeah, no, and it, and it's the last few years have been really tough in in the supplement industry. I mean, yeah. we haven't. I know there's things like trends coming out, like keto, and you know the whole hemp oil, and uh, a lot of people who call it CBD. You know, those are kind of a few new trends, and 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 one of them is an ingredient. But you know, we haven't really had any like major breakthrough. Uh, materials like we were seeing in the late '90s and early 2000s, where just constantly new new materials were coming out being proven to help with sports nutrition and recovery and stuff. So it's been hard for people to differentiate themselves. Um, and that's where I think you're seeing delivery forms and packaging uh, is what people have been leaning on the last five years. I know that's kind of your specialty on the yeah. packaging side. I mean, when you look at the packaging that people are doing, like what, what have you seen in the marketplace recently that really stands out for you from a packaging standpoint? I mean, I'm a very visual person, right? So when people shifted to like the spice jar type shape, I really clung to that right away. I was like, this is a cool different type of package and, um, you know, stuff with metallics and, and different things that, uh, you know, embossing, uh, doing spot UV finish, any of those types of things, I think differentiate your, pro your, your packaging from something else that they're saying. Now, if you're not even in a retail environment, I feel like it's just really important to have good graphics. Right, great videos, great graphics. Show people that the the flavor is actually going to be what they're looking for, and um, I mean, there's different ways to do that, right? You see people doing splashes and things like that in their graphics, but you got to also not make it so fake that people won't believe that this is what it is in real life. Yeah, right. That makes sense. So, where, where what's your stance on uh, pressure sensitive labels, wraparound label versus like a full shrink? I know that you know you were tasked with rebranding about time. 
and we went in the shrink you went in the shrink direction and i i still get text messages and dms all the time uh, i actually was on a call yesterday with somebody that owns a few uh retail stores and he said man ever, ever since you had the new packaging and about time we, we've sold a lot more about time in this store people just love it um you know and and it's gravity it's bringing in more diverse customers to to buy it and stuff like that so wh where do you stand on shrinks for everything and do you just think because there's more artwork that can be put onto it or is there a certain times where it's you know a label makes sense i think in a retail environment full body shrinks is the only way to go right now i mean you have more marketing room right you have more canvas to kind of put information for the product i think if you are strictly an online brand i think just regular labels gives you a lot more flexibility and that could be from just you know just in time shipping with your manufacturer and not needing you know to order ten thousand shrinks at a clip. That was going to be my next question. Right. So why don't why don't you uh, share a little bit? I know we we had some challenges, right? Learning the the shrinks and the order quantities to get the right price breaks and the sizes and stuff. Like, what would be your best advice if someone's calling you up or DMing you and saying, "Look, yeah. I, I definitely want to do a shrink." What what kind of advice would you give them? You're recording this, so I know you're going to bring this up at our next label <laughs> meeting. Uh, so. Shrinks are very uh, special uh, material, right? And you're gonna have to run them in a bulk quantity. And some printers will say, okay, you, know, you need to order 20,000 shrinks for this to be comparable to a label price. But you're gonna have to get a, a custom die cut for your specific bottle size. And then you're gonna need to try and figure out how to split all your different SKUs into that one bottle size. I think we were really successful because we changed all the bottle sizing to make sense. Right. We were we had products in different sizes that uh, wouldn't necessarily fit where they wanted to be. And I think when we did a quick study with the consumer base, we, we realized like some of our products we were putting in two two pound jars and we need to switch it to a one pound jar for it to make more sense. Right. And by by doing so, I think we were able to get down to four different bottle sizes. Yeah. So we had four different die cuts. And then within those die cuts, we had anywhere from two to four uh, different variations, meaning like flavors or product types, or all the way up to, I think, 16 different uh, variations for one specific size. So, I mean, I mean, if you're actually ordering like 100,000 shrinks, you're probably saving a lot of money going the shrink route because you're able to want to get them, get that larger canvas space. And uh, because you're getting such a, a large volume, most printers, just, they really hook up the pricing. Yeah, and you can is, also right? get a, a, uh, some savings on the bottle too, right? Because you don't have to- yeah, It doesn't matter what's certain, under it. Yeah, it doesn't matter yeah. what's under the shrink, so you can save a little money on that. So obviously, hearing you there, if someone's DMing you and saying, I want to start a brand, um, and you're sitting there telling them, hey, shrinks might not be the way to go. I think the advantage we had with About Time specifically was it was already in the marketplace. It had been in the marketplace. We had multiple SKUs, uh, you know, certain amount of revenue and, and volume going out the door. So it made a lot of sense. But someone starting brand new, um, coming in with shrinks, I mean, it seems like it's not economical for them to do that. Or are there certain instances where it is? I tell every single person that's starting out, you know, fresh out the gate to go with labels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're going to change your label, right? As <laughs> soon as you start, there's going to be a, a label claim change. There's going to be a formulation change. Something's going to happen in your first year typo. of business. Uh, typo. <laughs> typos. Um, we had some funny typos back in my day with like random stuff. I remember our warning statement once was like, warning, do not take if you're pregnant. But then like the next sentence was warning, do not take if you are pregnant. Right, if you're not pregnant, it had both. Of them, yeah, right? <laughs> and just like, who read this before this went to print? Probably 15 people. Because right? isn't it crazy how like every time we we launch something new, a new product, or s switch a label or formula, 
it's not on every skew, but you always find that typo or something that's wrong. Oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, who all reviewed this? And you see like eight signatures and it's just, you know, that's just the way it is. There's so many moving pieces on a label uh, and so many things that are hidden and so many, when you're looking at it for so long and trying to find things that are wrong, it's amazing how like one or two things that everybody misses. It seems to, it's common. I mean, you know, manufacturing for as many companies as we do, we see it all the time. So yeah, I definitely agree with you starting out with the label. No, uh, absolutely. And then there's going to be things like Prop 65, which are, you're going to have to decide whether you're going to have a separate label for California or whether you're going to have um, you know, it on just every label across the board. Yeah. We had different labels, one for California, one for the rest of the country, one for Canada, one for Europe. So let me ask you about that. I mean, we, we had dealt with some of those issues in the past, um, and now I believe we put the, the warning on just all of our branded products just you know, to make sure there's no, no problems, no issues. Uh, I, a couple questions. One, how with Amazon and direct to consumer shipping? If you're if you're shipping directly from your warehouse, obviously you can put a sticker on something that you're shipping to California. But you see a lot of people now selling on Amazon. So is there any way on Amazon where they'll separate and and add a sticker for you if they're shipping a product in into California, or is it just safer to have it all, that warning on all your products? Because there's no way for Amazon uh, to differentiate where that product's going. So Amazon's a great example of a place where you have no control, right? Uh, what goes into the warehouse is uh, can't be differentiated by state. So unfortunately, you have to put on everything yep. that goes to Amazon. Otherwise, you're putting yourself at risk, especially if you have botanicals or, or organic ingredients, things that are going to test positive no matter what you do. Yeah. Right. Explain that to people, because I don't think a lot of people, you know, everyone yeah. that's in the industry has heard of Prop 65. Not um, everyone. Well, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a that's a broad statement. You don't but. you don't really hear about it till you get that letter from yeah. from some scumbag in California. That's like, <laughs> uh, you know, we tested your product and you tested over, so now give us a hundred grand or else. Like, yeah, yeah. Just straight extortion. Like it's just it doesn't make any it sense. It totally is. Yeah, and, and you wonder how they get away with it. Yeah, I mean, so here at About Time, right, we put it on every single product, period, because we're using natural flavor systems uh, from the chocolate to the, the vanilla. cocoa. Yeah, yeah it, it's, just, it's impossible to avoid it. And uh, so explain I, I that. So when something like cocoa, which is kind of growing and coming out of the ground, right, the yeah. soils have certain amounts of, uh, you know, whether it's uh, lead or mercury or different things that are in every soil everywhere. So whether it's carrots that are growing or spinach or cocoa that's going into a supplement, uh, you're, you're going to have traces of these things. And so Prop 65 specifically says if your product tests over these limits that we've set up here in California, then we're able to, you know, take action against you and your company uh, because you're your products have over this amount of limit of, of a specific material in them. But I think what people don't realize is those limits are so small right? That it's, it's impossible with some materials. Uh, you might take, you know, a big handful of spinach and if they tested that, there's no possible way to eat a, a huge salad without those same yeah. amounts. Right. But you think there's a reason they were attacking specifically the supplement industry? Oh no, they attack everything in California. You can't go to a Starbucks without getting that on the cup at Starbucks oh, wow. in California. Yeah. See, I don't spend a lot of time in California. Yeah, so. You go to McDonald's, it's on every wrapper in a California McDonald's. That what? That like their french fries could the, cause the X, Y, Z? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the Prop 65 warning on like a doll packaging. 
<laughs> like every, it was like the craziest thing. Like you're not gonna eat this, but it has the Prop 65 <laughs> wording on yeah. it. Well, maybe that's the materials that went into making the doll. Because you know what, I did, I did order some uh, custom made stools for for my home, and they had a warning when they arrived, and it said something about uh, I don't I don't know if it was Prop 65 or a similar warning, but it, it talked about the chemicals used, and they meet certain regulations in California. It's always California. Yeah, I, I, I don't <laughs> think my butt sitting in a chair is gonna give me cancer. Like I just don't think that's gonna happen. But uh, it, it's everywhere. But you got to so. put it on there. Or these companies are going to get sued, right? Or at least, you know, threatened with litigation to, to hope for a settlement. I think the reason that the supplement industry is so um, easily targeted with Prop 65 is because it's so easy to test. Uh, it, it costs 365 bucks, literally, for them to go yeah. send your product to test at a, at a specific lab that I'm not going to name right now because I don't want people running around testing other people's products. But um, the specific... Um, a test that they have will test for that one ingredient and that's all they need, right? So let's say that your product is a test booster or let's say your product you know, claims organic on it and you don't have that warning on it. It's like ding, ding, ding. These guys just got a, you know, dollar signs in their eyes. Like this is a, yeah. an easy check. So they're just immediately just going to you know, buy the product from GNC or wherever it is that's a retail environment and just start shipping it off. Yeah, and so what we do here um, is every finished goods product that comes off our line is outside of being tested for microbes, we also test it for heavy metal, and that's kind of included with what we offer their cus the customers. So yeah. you know they can have an idea as their products are coming off to to know that they're within the Prop 65 limits. And again, there are some products just by the nature of the ingredients, you're not going to be able to control that, but at least they know through the testing that we provide uh, when it comes off the line and, and goes to the lab. No, for sure. I mean, Sean, I think I think we've been talking for over 25 minutes. People at home are probably going to stop tuning in at this point. But uh, Is that boring? No, no. <laughs> let, let, let's save let's save um, you know the rest of the questions I had for for the next episode. All right. Yeah. No, this right. was a good conversation. Yeah, for sure. All right. Cool. All right. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. Bye.